a nice, brisk, cool morning. <laughs> and really, you know, it's interesting. You, you walk and you see the crunch of the snow. You, um, you see the way the sun comes through and, and shines on branches. You see red roofs better than you would have if it wasn't snowing. It's, uh, it really is a wonderful time of the year. And um, when I was thinking about what to talk about, um, I thought really about um, the Lord's Supper. I thought about our communion that we take each week um, all across our nation, all, all around the world. People celebrate communion um, in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And some uh, synonyms for the word communion are closeness or relationship and intimacy. And it really provides a wonderful picture of what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. Communion is a noun that means sharing or exchanging intimate thoughts and feelings, especially one on a spiritual level. And, and I think sometimes people say, well, why would you have communion every Sunday? It must get, you know, very traditional, very boring. And really, it doesn't, because every time we're brought back to what God has done for us and who we are as a result of it. My husband's uncle, Charles Swisher, used to write a lot of poetry. And, um, but this is one I would like to share with you because it emphasizes the relationship that exists um, with Jesus as we worship while taking communion. He said, I feel my Savior's presence when we worship as we do, as the early Christians worshiped in Acts 2.42. As we continue, just as then, steadfastly in the word, the same apostles' doctrine the early Christians heard, joined in prayer and fellowship as a family, when we gather round his table, it's just my Lord and me. I feel my Savior's, Savior's presence as I eat the broken bread. I see him in that upper room. I hear him when he said, with heavy heart that evening, as he broke the loaf and prayed, and gave to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. This is my broken body, as he looked at Calvary. When I eat the bread that's broken, it's just my Lord and me. I feel my Savior's presence as I prepare to sup. I hear the words he spoke that night when he had blessed the cup. This is my blood poured out for you. Then I hear him say, remember me as you partake. And then I bow and pray. Help me, Lord that I may never eat or drink unworthily. When I drink the cup of blessing, it's just my Lord and me. And I thought that was such a beautiful picture of what we do each week. It is to remember, it is that sense of intimacy and relationship, a relationship with God and Jesus our Lord. And I believe this is really an important element of worship to think about as we close out 2017, <laughs> hard to believe, and usher in 2018. What is our relationship with God and his son Jesus? And what should we be thinking about? A classmate of mine from Lincoln Christian University many years ago, uh, Patrick Heston, wrote these words as he was entering this, this Christmas season. He said, God of Advent and of all, we worship like we live, with thanks for your having come, with joy for your being with us, with hope for your coming again. As you have been and are and are yet to be, let us know you, let us worship you, let us be you to this world where we live. For your glory alone. Amen.
Paul Gauguin is the famous French artist of the late 19th century. He had been a sailor and then a stockbroker in 1885. He left his wife and five children to be a, an artist. And he spent much time overseas before spending the last years of his life in poverty and disease and despair in Tahiti. So in 1897, he attempted to commit suicide, but he failed and he lived another five years. And in those five years, he created what was considered his best masterpiece. And it was a three-paneled work that was entitled, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? And Where Are We Going? And the first panel shows three women and a child representing the beginning of life. The middle panel shows the existence of young adults, meaning what are we? And the third panel shows an old woman approaching death. Where are we going? The three questions are written in small print at the bottom corner of the painting. Where do we come from? Who are we? And where are we going? And Patrick had said, we worship like we live, with thanks for your having come, with joy for your being with us, with hope for your coming again. These are really important universal questions. They're asked in every culture, and they're asked in every worldview. Those go back to the basis that people are wanting to know. But as Christians, we turn to the scripture to answer these questions. And we're going to look at who Jesus had been before he came to earth, who was he here on earth, and what is going to happen in the future. So where did Jesus come from? Do we ever think beyond the baby stage? You know, he came as a baby. We, we just celebrated that uh, last week at Christmas time. And, and we study his, his, uh, his ministry. We study his disciples and his struggles. We study his, uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection. But who was he before that? In the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it says, in the beginning, the same three words that Genesis start with, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Jesus existed before a babyhood, didn't he? He was there at creation. Colossians 1.15-17 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. I can't say that very well. Heavenly realms <laughs> and on earth. He made the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds creation together. This is Jesus before he came to us. Why am I emphasizing this? I teach, I taught this last semester worldviews at Maritime Christian College. The Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, is very much under attack. 
very much under attack. And we have to know what we believe. We have to know who we believe in. In Micah's prophecy of Jesus' birth, it tells us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, a small village of Judah, but the baby's origins would be from a distant past. Hebrews 7 and 13 tell us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is a priest forever and the evidence of a new covenant with God. Who can imagine, who can imagine what this meant for him, coming into a sinful world, leaving the intimacy with the Father to be a sacrificial lamb? Who can imagine what that was like? I mean, it's hard enough when you're in the comfort of your, of your family. And um, I remember when my mom and dad took me down to Lincoln uh, to go to, to college. And, um, and, you know, you're all ready for adventure. You're 18. You're on your own. But um, a Sunday afternoon, they were getting ready to leave back for Ontario. And um, my dad was holding my hand. And he started to drive away with my hand. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of my greatest memories of my dad. And, and that's really what it's like, isn't it? You don't want to let go of that comfort and that, that relationship. You're on your own, but you really don't want to be totally on your own. And for Jesus to have left that intimacy of heaven to come to be our sacrifice, I can't, I, I can't imagine. I remember when the students at Maritime Christian College were raising money for a mission trip to Poland. There were two girls and two guys that were going on this trip. And uh, one of the fundraisers was preparing breakfast on a Saturday morning for the church board, or the college board. And uh, so the two girls were doing baking, and the two guys were baking together. And the guys were so excited. They were making blueberry muffins from the Tanner cookbook. Special cookbook. Only people, certain people can get it. Anyway, Robbie and John were making these blueberry muffins, and they came out of the oven looking just beautiful. And they were so proud of these muffins. So they decided to sample them. And it didn't take long to realize that they had used salt instead of sugar. <laughs> so although they looked beautiful, they were bitter. And what a huge disappointment. They would love it that I'm telling the story. Uh, but what it seemed like perfection was flawed, wasn't it? And just as created man was flawed because of his use of free will to disobey God, Jesus paid that penalty. What looked like perfection it was imperfect. And so we go from who was Jesus before he came to who was he here? Who was he here on earth? And I think that tells us a lot because we're here on earth. So the way he, he came, we, we of course, um, were born as well, not quite the same um, with God as our Father in that way. But Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, give us a picture. It says, though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That is such a, a, a wonderful picture of what, what Jesus did for us. He gave up his divinity to become the lowest of the servants. Isaiah 42, 1-3 tells us what could be expected of Jesus on earth. It says, Look at my servant, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed 
or put out a flickering candle, he will bring justice to all who have been wronged. And that is such an amazing picture of Jesus' ministry. He didn't come for the ones who felt that they were perfect. He didn't come for the ones who, who, who he couldn't touch. He came for the weakest reed, for the flickering candle, and he nurtured them. So I want to just look at a few of those stories. If the kids were still here, I'd ask them questions, but adults don't always like to be asked questions in church. So we'll just look at some of these situations. The first one I thought of was Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. When you study that passage, it is such an amazingly beautiful conversation that he has with her. He doesn't point any fingers. She had come at a time when the other women were coming. He knew she had had five husbands and now was living with a man who was not her husband. But there was no condemnation. He was there to raise her up and not to bring her down. And Samaritans, you know, were not the most loved by the Jews. So this weakest of reeds, he was there to minister to. The healing of the man, he was lame for 38 years. He was by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And you can still see that uh, the broken parts of that pool. And he wanted, he wanted to help. But when the, the water stirred, there was nobody to help him get into the pool. And Jesus was there for this man who was lame for 38 years to help him walk again and feel whole again. And then we have the calling of Matthew. Now, tax time is coming up here, isn't it? <laughs> but we don't quite feel, I don't think, the same as uh, about our tax collectors, maybe we do, as uh, the Jewish felt about their tax collectors. They, Matthew was a hated man by the Jewish people. He worked for the Romans and they took theirs off the top as well. But this is who, one of who Jesus called to be an apostle, Matthew. And then we have the calming of the storm when his apostles were terrified. Um, I like to be on a boat, but I don't think I'd like it when it was so crazy out there and you felt you were going down. We used to have a cottage on Lake Erie, and Lake Erie is the most shallow of all the Great Lakes, and there are more storms on it because of the shallowness of the water. And it could get pretty, there would be stones come up from, from the lake and hit our windows at the cottage and stick to our windows. So it could be very powerful, and I would not want to be out there then. So you think about these men who were fishermen, many of them, and um, which maybe increased their terror, didn't it? because they understood the water and the storms. And Jesus was there to calm them. This compassion that he had that was prophesied of in Isaiah. The widow's son in the village of Nain. A widow in Judea would have no one to care for her. because She did not have a son. And uh, I remind my son of his responsibilities to me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he smiles. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I think I do. Anyway, this weakest of reeds, this flickering candle, he cared about this widow, and he stopped the funeral procession, and he raised the son to life. The healing of the Roman centurion's daughter, a Roman centurion, the conquerors over their land. And this is who he chose to, to heal, this daughter of this this believing 
centurion. This centurion, this Roman officer had come to him or sent someone to him because he knew Jesus could heal. The compassion for the woman caught in adultery with the self-righteous coming to him who were going to stone her and his compassion for this woman. And then finally, I looked at his conflict and his submission in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, this is a, something I think of so deeply, and it, it ties in, of course, with the Lord's Supper because he just celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples, and he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which would be on the Mount of Olives, you look over, and that is where the temple's, temple was standing. And they feel the temple, that area, was where Abraham had taken Isaac as a sacrifice, and God had provided a ram. But Jesus was in this Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his father, knowing there would be no ram, that he was going to be the sacrifice. And so when Isaiah says, you know, that he came to bring justice, he did not shout or raise his voice. He did not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. That's talking about us too. That's why he has come. That's why he suffered through the cross. And so he humbled himself and he became the window to the Father or a reflection of the Father and the sacrifice of our sins. This is who Jesus was on earth. But after he rose from the dead, he still spent time, didn't he, with his disciples. He didn't immediately uh, ascend into heaven. And we see Mary in the garden when she had heard that the body was gone. She was standing there and he came and he approached her and he was so gentle with her. His forgiving spirit with Peter, who had denied him three times. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he continued teaching his followers because he knew they were sheep. And he knows we're sheep, that we need that shepherd, that we need that nurturing, that we need that teaching. So Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son radiates God's own glory, and he expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And Philippians 2, 9 to 11, going on from the servant passage, says, Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the disciples were meeting, Jesus was talking to them in the last time, and he started to ascend into heaven. And the angels were there. Can you imagine? Here's the apostles just standing there like this. And the angels said, what are you doing? Why are you looking up into heaven? He'll come again the way he left. But for now, he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us, still compassionate for us, knowing our hearts, and interceding for us. So our last step is, and as you are yet to be, who, who is Jesus? Where, what is going to happen in the future? Well, Jesus is coming again. There are those who like to say they already know. I always think that's the safest day of the whole year. 
when somebody says Jesus is coming that day because it says nobody's going to know. <laughs> so, so if I'm kind of worried about it, <laughs> that's a day you don't think it's going to happen. So it says he's going to return from heaven in the same way the apostles saw him go into heaven. John 1.4 says he is preparing a place in his father's home and returning to get us. So we will always, we will eternally live with him. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives forever, eternally, to intercede with God on our behalf. Has anybody else done that for you? <laughs> I know, depending upon which my parents got mad, the other one might intercede a little bit, but my dad would usually say, whatever your mother said. So he wasn't much good at interceding for me. <laughs> but Jesus is there interceding, interceding for us. Revelation 22, 7 and 12, they say, Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the Jesus we worship. He gave up everything to become our sacrifice, and he lives eternally in a place where we are going to be taken. He is preparing it for us, and he is the beginning and the end. This is an amazing, an amazing uh, God that we follow. There is a story, it's called Eternity, and it was on a, a website called True or False. And, uh, and it took place of a, a story of a homeless man in Sydney, Australia. And, um, and it, turned, it is a true story. Arthur Stace was a loser, a no-hoper, an alcoholic, completely illiterate. He lived in the streets of Sydney, regarded by many who saw him as a lost cause. One Sunday night in 1932, he entered St. Barnabas' Anglican Church in Broadway, Learn on Broadway, and he heard the Reverend T.C. Hammond preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Arthur was convicted by the Spirit of God. He left the church, crossed the road, sat under a tree in Victoria Park, where he committed his life to Jesus Christ. He became a new creation. <coughs> Later that year, he was in the Burton Street Baptist Tabernacle on the corner of Palmer Street when he heard the evangelist John G. Ridley preaching. In his urgent, commanding voice, John Ridley cried, Eternity! Eternity! Oh, that is the word that should be emblazoned across the streets of Sydney. Arthur Stace, the little man who could still not read or write, left <coughs> that church, took some yellow chalk, bent down and wrote one word on the footpath, and throughout the night, for the next 40 years, while Sydney slept, Arthur would take his chalk, write in immaculate copper plate handwriting the word eternity on footpaths, entrances to the train station, anywhere he thought it would catch people's attention. Sydney siders would alight from their commuter trains of a morning, see this word as they walked to work. In Sydney today, you see this same word in three different places. On his gravestone in the Waverley Cemetery, commemorating the life of Arthur Stace, who had become known as Mr. Eternity. Inside the huge bell of the GPO Tower, clock, clock Tower, which had been dismantled during the Second World War, and when the clock tower was rebuilt in the 1960s, the bell was brought out of storage, and as the workmen were installing the bell, they noticed inside the word Eternity. 
in chalk by Arthur Stace. No one ever found out how he'd been able to get to the bell, which had been sealed up to add to this mysterious entry. And in the town hall square between St. Andrew's Cathedral and the Sydney Town Hall, when the area was redeveloped in the 1970s, a solid brass replica of the word in Stace's original copper plate handwriting was embedded in the footpath <coughs> near a fountain as an eternal memorial to Arthur Stace. But as the year 2000 was welcomed, the word eternity in Stace's handwriting was emblazoned not across the streets of Sydney, as John Ridley had wished, but across the face of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which was seen around the world. If you watch television, when the millennial turned, the fireworks went off the bridge of Sydney, and the word eternity was written on that bridge. So, Ecclesiastes 3.12.3.11 says, God... He, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So who was Jesus before he came? Who was he on earth? And where, who is he now? The question really becomes, where have you been? Who are you now? And where are you going? Because God has placed eternity in your heart. So our challenge today is the end of Patrick's uh, poem. Let us know you, God. Let us worship you. Let us be you to this world where we live. So that's our challenge today. Thank you. Um, I guess I'll close with prayer. Is that okay? <laughs> Dear Father in heaven, we feel so grateful as we are ending this year of 2017 you have given us a brand new year to write on which starts tomorrow because you are a god of beginnings you give us new days you give us new hours you give us new weeks new months new years and you are there to provide the newness within us through the understanding and acceptance of your son, Jesus. So, Father, I thank you. We thank you that we can worship you, that we can be you in this world, that we will be encouraging the flickering lights and strengthening the weakest reeds and understanding that the strength we have does not come from us, but it comes from you. In your son's name, amen. Amen. And Happy New Year. <laughs>